Welcome to Hear Me Out. I'm your host, Celeste Headley. So what if secession wasn't the third rail of politics? It's safe to say the last time it was tried on U.S. soil, it didn't go well. More soldiers died in the Civil War than in the Revolutionary War, World War I, World War II, and the Korean War combined. And things have not been sunshine and daisies since then. So if the S word happened again, could it end up being a good thing? Our guest today argues, yes. Bigness is badness, and we're a big country. Smaller countries are happier, less corrupt. That argues for looking carefully at the possibility of becoming a smaller country. Writer and Professor Frank Buckley joins us on Hear Me Out in just a moment. Stay with us. We're back on Hear Me Out. I'm Celeste Headley. In the past weeks and months, there have been rare but increasingly loud calls for a, well, surprising solution to our political divide. Marjorie Taylor Greene is among the most high-profile people talking about this. She tweeted on February 20th, We need a national divorce. We need to separate by red states and blue states and shrink the federal government. Everyone I talk to says this. From the sick and disgusting woke culture issues shoved down our throats to the Democrats' traitorous America last policies, we are done. And she doubled down on Sean Hannity's show a few days later. Our ideas, our policies, our ways of life have become so far apart that it's just coming to that point. And the last thing I ever want to see in America is a civil war. No one wants that. At least everyone I know would never want that. But it's going that direction and we have to do something about it. And this kind of rhetoric is cropping up outside of D.C. too. California and the Mountain West have long had pockets of residents with, shall we say, secessionist ambitions? And listen to Texas State Representative Brian Slayton. He recently filed a bill that put the possibility of secession on his state's 2024 ballot. People are frustrated with the federal government, with the southern border not being secured, the fentanyl crisis we have, the uh, spending all of our grandkids' money, even talks about coming after our Second Amendment rights. Now we need to say right off the top, this is not a popular opinion. But it's not a unanimously unpopular one either. A 2021 UVA Center for Politics poll found that 41% of Biden voters and 52% of Trump voters were somewhat or very interested in splitting the country up. Of course, liking the idea in theory is different than liking it in practice. Our states rely on each other. For business, for infrastructure, for shared resources. We might not always get along, but could some states get by alone? And what would it take to get there, anyway? After all, there's the whole secession is illegal thing that could throw a spanner in the works. So realistically, could secession happen again? Frank Buckley says, yes. He's a professor at George Mason University, a native of Canada, who became an American nine years ago. And with that outsider perspective, he wrote the literal book on modern secession. It's called American Secession, the looming threat of a national breakup. According to Frank, a national divorce isn't as unlikely as you might think, and he believes it could lead to better lives for the current and maybe former Americans involved. I want to begin by reading you something from um, Abraham Lincoln's first inaugural address, um, which happened in early March of 1861. And he said, quote, Plainly, the central idea of secession is the essence of anarchy. 
a majority held in restraint by constitutional checks and limitations and always changing easily with deliberate changes of popular opinions and sentiments is the only true sovereign of a free people. Whoever rejects it does of necessity fly to anarchy or despotism. Unanimity is impossible. The rule of a minority as a permanent arrangement is wholly inadmissible so that rejecting the majority principle, anarchy or despotism in some form is all that's left. What would your response be? When you think about the first inaugural, I'd ask you to remember there are other passages in the speech which some listeners will find troubling. Lincoln said, I have no desire to interfere with slavery in any way. Moreover, he signaled his willingness to sign a constitutional amendment which would guarantee the right of slavery forever in the slave states. So, you know, one thing about 1861 is slavery was not on the table. The only thing that was on the table was union and the terms of disunion. Isn't that the point, though? I mean, he, yeah, most people would not agree with him when he said he'd had no inclination to interfere, but his purpose was to prevent secession. That's how important he felt it was to keep the union together. You know, I prefer a peaceful way of doing things, and, and part of what I wanted to do in the book was to try to rehabilitate somebody who was a true rotter, James Buchanan, the previous president. Yeah. Because in the State of the Union Address in 1860, what Buchanan said is, look, things are going great. You know, we've got a bunch of hot-headed abolitionists, but really, you know, things are cool for you guys. No country in the world better protects slavery, he said. And then he said, yeah, but South Carolina wants to secede, and what am I supposed to do about it? Am I supposed to invade them? And that's what Lincoln did, right? Now, my state of Virginia held three votes on secession, and the first two failed. There were a lot of prominent unionists, uh, including people like Robert E. Lee. And then Lincoln announced that he wanted to call up 75,000 volunteers to invade the South, and the next day, Virginia voted to secede. But, well, not, I don't want to say any state has the right to secede, but I do want to say that invasion is a bad thing. And moreover, so did James Madison, not the Constitutional Convention. Madison initially proposed a right of, uh, of invasion in a case of a state that misbehaved, didn't pay its taxes. And then the next day, or two days later, on May 31, he said, 1787, the use of force against a state would look more like a declaration of war than an infliction of punishment. In other words, Madison was saying Virginia had a right to secede. So the constitutional question here is when you have a vote of secession in a state, does that entitle the president to send in an invading army? So the point I want to make here is, of Lincoln, I think I'd want to say, the man had a good deal of Bismarck in him. That's regrettable. I think that if slavery were not on the table, I don't think it's right to make war on a state that wants out. Okay. So I think that probably the idea that um, you could compare Abraham Lincoln to Bismarck in the United States, at least, is another very spicy take. Uh, we won't go into that, though, um, because I want to stay with this idea of secession. Um, it is something that uh, has been a perennial debate in the United States, especially the Southern states, since before the Civil War began, but certainly since its end. Um, there's a 
a, a, a Texas politician that introduced a secession bill there recently. But the problem is secession is illegal. How do you get past the illegality? And what I mean by that is legality, meaning the rules that we have decided upon as a society that allow us to live alongside and near one another without engaging in violence. In the end, that's kind of what our laws are for, right? To protect everybody equally. So how do you get past the fact that it's not lawful? There was one Supreme Court decision on illegal, we don't want to get illegal on this, right? But the Texas Supreme Court in 1869 ruled that secession was illegal. And what would you expect the Supreme Court to have said at that point? Would it have said, for example, gee, South Carolina, we're sorry about all of that, or gee, Atlanta, we're, we're sorry we burned you, like my bad. So it was a bit late in the day after the fact to rule that secession was possible. But, you know, while I don't want to get into the argument about uh, that 1869 decision, it seems to me the reasoning was, was pretty shoddy. So if, as I say, there is no right of secession, but that in a democracy, you can't ignore the decided wish of a people to secede, then it seems to me that what we'd be talking about is a set of negotiations about dividing things up. That's contemplated for by Article 5 of the Constitution. In short, Article 5, introduced, by the way, by the never-too-much-to-be-praised George Mason, said, yeah, you know, a convention of a states can entirely rewrite the Constitution. If you're looking for a legal way in which the states could secede, that's it. Purely legal. I... I mean, it's it's difficult in, in a discussion of this type to use historical precedent to prove anybody's case, only because James Madison, um, his idea about right of revolution was nuanced, right? It wasn't just a full-throated support of secession. He approved of removing oneself from a oppressive government in which uh, the rights of people, he, and he wrote even wrote in extreme cases, were being uh, denied. But I want to bring it forward to today because you had said you feel like secession today would not be violent. Yeah. How do you square that opinion with what happened on January sixth? Oh, January sixth was a scandal. I mean, and it it you know it it permanently tainted one wing of the Republican Party, not the entire party, to be sure. Was that an attempt to overthrow the government? Well, I, you know, I don't think governments get overthrown by people who wear funny hats and paint their faces. You know, it, there was nothing like Fort Sumter on January 6th. There has been craziness in our past, but what we're talking about is something different. What we're talking about if, as you say, history isn't going to help us a great deal here, is what is the position of secession today in countries which tolerate it? And that's a question of, amongst other things, international law. And the leading case on point is one of the Canadian Supreme Court, which said roughly the following, there is no right of secession, but if there's a decided majority of people who want out, there is a requirement for the rest of the country to enter into negotiations with the would-be seceding state. That's what I'm talking about when I say what this would lead to would be probably an Article 5 convention, which can rewrite the Constitution any way it wants. So 
I think that's probably more likely what would happen. It's certainly what happened in Quebec. I mean, look, I lived through this, so I, you know, I kind of know something about it. And what happened in Quebec was what happens here, namely uh, sorting of people. I mean, but but Quebec didn't secede. No, it didn't. It came within one percentage point of seceding, of, of voting to secede. I should say, right? The, yeah. The, the vote. I mean, but that's a. That's an important distinction. You're, you're talking the precedent that happened in Quebec did not result in secession, and the violence of the Civil War didn't begin at Fort Sumter. Yeah. There were skirmishes, possibly in some cases carried out by oddly dressed people. There was horrible violence. There were even massacres in some places. Um, there were small militias carrying out violent attacks, especially in the border states that were still deciding whether they should. Um, make slavery legal or illegal, um, especially in the frontier states. There was, it was not organized, the Civil War, until it was organized. Before that, it was chaotic and spontaneous in some cases and horribly violent. Recall that you're the person who says that history is not going to get us terribly far in this one, and I agree with you. So I've tried to bring things more up to date to imagine what secession would look like today. And you know, I don't think we'd see Kansas Jayhawks and anything like that. Yeah, I think you'd see some, you know, some form of political protest. And to the extent it turns violent, as it did on January sixth, uh, people would be put in jail. But you know, that doesn't still the voices of people who still want to talk about secession. And by the way, let's remember that you know, apart from a few uh, crazy right wingers, excuse me. You had John Podesta in June 2020 suggesting that a response to a Trump re-election in 2020 might be for California to secede. So, yeah. Yeah. So uh, I don't know where it would come from. In fact, I think what would be probably most likely in all of this would be a Cal exit, right? Uh, California voting to secede after the election of a Trump or a Trump-like candidate in 2024. I still think that that's not going to happen. But I don't think either of us wants to try to make predictions about the future particularly. No, because we even have trouble uh, making predictions about the past. We're yep. going to take a quick break. Um, I'm speaking with Frank Buckley, who is a writer and professor at George Mason University, talking about secession and trying not to let it lead to civil war here on Hear Me Out, podcast from Slate. We'll be back in just a moment. We're back. This is Hear Me Out, and I am Celeste Headley, speaking with Frank Buckley, who teaches at George Mason University. And we're talking about whether secession can be positive. So let's focus on that, because, I mean, I think the I, the, the question of whether a nonviolent secession would be possible is is difficult to answer. But I'm interested to know why you think it could be productive. Yeah. I ran a bunch of regressions about this because, hey, that's what we do at George Mason. And what I found was roughly small is beautiful, bigness is badness. There was a big debate about that amongst the founders. And, and, and you know, roughly the small states, the small is beautiful contingent won. And they were right, I think. It didn't work out that way, kind of bamboozled by some smarter people. But in general, smaller countries are happier, less corrupt for reasons that that the framers thought would explain things. They thought in a small country, the representatives are closer to the represented. There's a greater ability to police people. There's a greater sense of what it is the people want. 
So, you know, it, it, in all those respects, it turned out smaller countries kind of beat the pants off us. I mean, the biggest countries, uh, this in terms of population, were uh, China, us, Russia, India. And you know, these are countries which, by the way, try to militarily throw their weight around. They project their power. Big states try to do that. Smaller countries have fewer military ambitions. Maybe that's not a bad thing. You know, I mean, I think there's going to be a lot of debate about how to define that. And I mean, going by the Transparency International's index, the the least corrupt countries uh, in the world are places like Denmark, New Zealand, Finland. Those are not the smallest countries in the world. Norway, Singapore, Sweden, they're smaller than the U.S. for sure. But the U.K. is is not on that list. And they're much smaller than the United States. Some of the smallest countries in comparison to size and population are not in the top 10 or even the top 20. And and, and let me take this one step further. And I'll, say I'll comment that, on that. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Let me, and then go ahead and comment that and I'll bring up my next point. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Transparency International is an NGO based in Berlin, which ranks countries according to measures of corruption, according to surveys conducted by people in those countries. And, and frankly, we don't do well. And the countries ahead of us on the list tend to be smaller. I think they're all smaller and parliamentary. And some of them are monarchies, by the way. So, you know, I read the regressions. And in terms of corruption, bigness is badness. So then let me go to the, the next thing, which is, at least in the United States, the states that most often talk about secession and where you have the highest percentage of support for seceding are the states that are the most dependent on federal money. Yeah. So places like Alabama, Mississippi, uh, New Mexico, you will find a lot of people talking about secession there, but they also cannot survive without federal welfare. California pays for a lot of these states whose people say they want to secede. That, so, that, that's a great point. When I teach this stuff and I'm talking about rule of law and I note that America has a corruption problem, I get bewildered looks from my students and then I say, well, have you, there's this place called Illinois. Have you ever heard of it? Or there's this place called Louisiana or Mississippi. So yeah, you know, we don't exactly shine on those measures. The other point you make, which I think is a really good one, is that the states which from which one hears noises about secession or whom we might think would be the most likely candidates are states that are heavily dependent on federal welfare payments. So this turned out to be a real argument for union in Quebec. The leader of the pro-union, the Federalist Forces, described something he called federalisme rentable, which meant profitable federalism. In other words, if you in Quebec want to secede, what do you do about the fact that you're really much the net recipient of money from Ottawa? More money goes from Ottawa to Quebec than the other way around. Uh, and that's especially true of places like Mississippi and Alabama. Yeah. Which is why, you know, when John Podestas talked about a California secession, I paid attention because California, as you just noted, is a net giver, not taker. Right. You know, and I've, I kind of figured out if you if you put the option to Californians and you said, look, what we could do is zero out all our payments towards the military, and that would be enough to fund a national health scheme in California. Okay. Um, yeah. 
hey, I like national health. I mean, I thought it worked out fairly well, better than most people think in Canada. So Typical Canadian. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Don't ask me to say about it. But you're right. Look, nearly 50% of, of Democrats on the West Coast, d again, this is limited, nearly 50% of Democrats on the West Coast support secession. So it is not just the Southern states, but it's mostly the Southern conservatives. Yeah, and that's... I don't think going to get anywhere. By the way, there's one other thing. If we're kind of listing reasons why this ain't going to happen, here's another one. 1860 South Carolina secedes. That's real simple. The federal presence is like nearly invisible. It's a bunch of postmasters. So yeah, yeah add some federal judges. <laughs> All of them immediately resign and are hired by the South Carolina government. Hey, that's not going to work in Mississippi, Right. The federal right. presence is so deeply entrenched, especially in the poorer states like Mississippi, that Mississippi couldn't handle it. Well, neither could Alabama. Or Alabama, um, yeah. Or, or Alaska, or, you know. Yeah, California would look good. By the way, there's another point I want to make about, about all of this. We're not talking about building a brick wall around California. You know, when I talk about this, the one thing that really frightens people is the idea that they might have to have a passport to visit their folks in Oklahoma, whatever. And so, but you can work this out with a common passport. So that's the sort of thing that sovereignty association would likely mean. It would, it would end up meaning a devolution of power from Washington to the states. Well, okay, I can live with that. I think uh, the federal government is oversized. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, Frank and I will tackle whether our current government is necessary for a just and fair society. This is Hear Me Out. Stay with us. We're back on Hear Me Out. I'm Celeste Headley. Let's return to my conversation with author and professor Frank Buckley. One of the intended tasks for the federal government is to protect the unprotected, is to serve as a check on states that may overstep their bounds, as in the recent um, federal justice investigation that showed that police departments were routinely discriminating uh -huh. against and abusing black residents who are a minority, and if this were up to a vote, may not prevail in keeping their state within the United States of America, and would therefore yet again probably be victimized and discriminated against because they would no longer have that federal check. How would you then, if secession is productive, isn't it only productive for uh, for the majority? Well, uh, I agree and I disagree with you in part. First of all, I think one of the benefits of the current federal regime is where there is, for example, or injustice in a particular state, it's important for the feds to be able to step in. Okay. And what, I, by the way, what I have in mind here is in particular the prosecution of the people behind the 1964 civil rights murders. What happened in mm -hmm. that case was the state refused to prosecute them for murder. And the only federal offense we had at that point was interfering with, with uh, voting rights, which was a 10 year yeah. max sentence. And the Kennedy Justice Department, or I guess the Johnson Justice Department, sent John Doerr down there to argue the point. And what he said is, when a state is so totally corrupt that you can't trust any element in it, not the police, not even the state judicial system, 
then your only recourse is the Department of Justice in Washington. That was absolutely true. Now, I do want to say, however, that one of the reasons why secession is not so horrible a thing as it would have been in 1861 or 1964 was the success of the civil rights revolution. So, look, you know, every state is pretty diverse at this point. So, there'd be no going back on the successes of, of that revolution. There'd be differences with respect to things like abortion, as there are differences now. We're not going back to slavery, I, and we're not going back to the kind of injustices we saw in 1964 even. I, I got to disagree with you, Frank. Okay. I mean, to say that we haven't, that we've come far, yeah, we, we should have come far since slavery. But to say that they are not individual states in which the rates of discrimination, the rates of discriminatory sentencing and prosecution, the rates of redlining and insurance where it costs more to be a black or brown person in a particular state. I mean, that's just not looking at the data. There are absolutely states in which it is it is healthier um, to be a black and brown person and less healthy. There are states where it is more expensive to be darker skin color than it is in other states. I mean, that's just to say that we're diverse. I mean, that's a truism. But to say that we're we have equity is it's just provably not true. We still need the federal government to step in. That report I was talking about, in which they found rampant discrimination, just came out like within the past month. Look, I'm I'm looking at the country, and I'm not seeing a country so horribly in need of correction from Washington as you do, right? Uh, huh. y you know. Do you think that's because I'm a black Jewish female and you're not? The question is whether objectively one of us is correct or not. For example, you and I probably disagree about things like abortion, which I also see as a matter of protecting yes. the people in, in need of protection. I th think that the Supreme Court decision was a form of home rule along the lines that I'm suggesting. You mean the Dobbs decision on, on throwing out Roe v. Wade? Yeah, exactly. And I, you know, mm -hmm. and, and I think if you were, for example, a New Yorker or a Californian, you might well object to it you know, from your background, whatever, and, and and here I don't. But the desire to have a uniform policy across the United States strikes me as liberal triumphalism, right? What does that mean? What is liberal triumphalism? Well, it's liberal imperialism. It's the idea that I have right on my side and you guys are evil, right? And And we're not permitted to disagree about these things. I think we should be permitted to disagree about these things. But, you know, you're, you're raising a good point. And the point is that uh, at this point, I guess, progressives see themselves in control of the commanding heights of our society, in the media, in you know, corporations, in government. And I think it'd be rather different if you had a Republican administration and all of that was reversed. Right. So I, I, I guess what I'm saying is you want to look at the question of secession as a constitutional and not a political matter. You're saying, I don't think I'd like the way politically this would turn out. I'm saying, you don't know politically how this would turn out. 
It might be just the opposite. It might be that you might have, for example, a government in Washington that proposes to outlaw some of the things that you cherish. In that case, you know, constitutionally, secession might seem like a good option for progressives. I, I mean, I, I think you're you're mischaracterizing what I'm saying just a little bit. I, I'm less worried about politically what happens. I mean, I, you know, right now, if I don't want to live in a state where my reproductive rights are limited, I move to a different state. My concern is more when a state secedes because of the opinion of the majority being a member of the minority on, on many levels, that worries me because in many cases, it's been the federal government that has stepped in. Not in all cases. I'm not saying the federal government is great. I've been a journalist for way too long to believe that. Uh, I'm just saying that there are a number of cases in which it has been shown, Little Rock High School, for example, that the federal government often has had to step in to protect the um, disadvantaged. Mm -hmm. And if, if Mississippi becomes its own nation, then the people who live there who are a, a part of the minority, who maybe didn't vote to secede, will then no longer have uh, that protection. And they had therefore have to move to another country. Well, look, you're being really fair, I got to admit. And what you're saying, I think, will resonate with a lot of people. But as to who the minority that might feel hard done by, that's hard to say. It depends on who wants to secede. Are we talking about, yeah. you know, the transgender kid who wants to swim on the female swim team? Or are we talking about the females on that swim team who object? And the government can tip its hand in either direction on this one, depending on who gets elected. So there are going to be people left out. And look, I, I, yeah. hey, I lived through this in Quebec. I mean, I was a bilingual Anglo. I would have been okay, right? But there were a lot of unilingual mm -hmm. yeah. Anglos, and they ended up moving to Toronto, which for me was like a, a fate worse than death. Okay, so um, you know, <laughs> we're gonna get we're gonna get calls from the people in Toronto. Yeah, I know, I'm but I'm you know. you know, remember, I'm a Montrealer. Okay, so expected, you know. Um, <laughs> so. Um, what happened was, what upset the Anglos in Quebec was something called Bill 101, which was a French language bill, which, which made it harder to live in English in Quebec, right? And the Anglos in Quebec, they didn't call it Bill 101, they called it Bill 401, which is the name of the highway between Montreal and Toronto, and about 300,000 Anglos in, you know, over the course of the next 30 years moved from Montreal to Toronto. So yeah, there'd be a lot of moving, and there was some discomfiture in that. On the other hand, we're a mobile nation. 60% of us are living in a state different from the one in which we grew up. So there'd be, a, there'd be a lot of sorting out, you know, and I don't think it would be so horrible. I mean, I was in one debate and somebody said, yeah, but, you know, Quebec enacted all of this horrible French language legislation. And my answer was, well, I can't predict the future. You know, nobody wants to answer a hypothetical question. But the one thing of which I'm fairly sure is that no seceding state would want to enact French language only legislation. <laughs> but they will suddenly take over and become owners of property and um, valuable resources that were paid for and developed by the entire nation. Totally. I mean, that's got to be negotiated. Uh, California, get, you know does not get the Pacific fleet, and California does not get a right to exit from its share of the national debt. These are the things that have to be discussed. 
and and solved satisfactorily on either side. And if they don't, well, then it might get nasty. But I think they would. You know, I don't think we'd see a Fort Sumter. Huh. Well, I, I uh, for a conservative, I am impressed by your optimism. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it goes against the grain. It certainly does. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Frank Buckley, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. I can't say I'm swayed, but it's, it's certainly an interesting idea. So, Les, thanks so much for being so fair and so nice. Here's the thing. I couldn't disagree more with Frank Buckley. I personally think secession is a terrible idea. But it's not that hard to be fair and nice because he is also fair and nice. And he's been teaching history and law since I was in high school. So he knows lots of things that I don't. I feel like I learn more from the people who disagree with me than the people who share my views. That's just the truth. Did you learn anything? We'd love to hear about it on social media. You can find Slate on Twitter at Slate and me at Celeste Headley. Thanks once again to Frank Buckley for joining us. His book, American Secession, is out now. Hear Me Out is a podcast from Slate. The show is produced by Maura Curry. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations, and Alicia Montgomery is VP of Slate Audio. I'm your host, Celeste Headley. Until next time, speak your mind, but keep it open. Listener.